welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Well, good morning, friends. Here we are. <laughs> um, well, I wanted to start this morning just by saying thank you. Um, thank you for your flexibility, for understanding, um, even for the appreciation and encouragement uh, around the decision to move to virtual for the next couple of weeks. So through January, we plan on gathering like this. Thankful that we have the option to do it this way. Um, and then we'll reevaluate from there. I know for myself and for probably almost every person I talked to this week, it was just a little bit of a doozy, like punch in the gut kind of week. So all the more reason, I think, to, I don't know, ground in something bigger than ourselves. So that's the hope for this morning. Um, and in that vein, our call to worship this morning is from someone named Howard Thurman. Um, I've shared from this devotional many times, Meditations of the Heart. He's one of my favorites, um, but it felt fitting this morning um, as we walk into this week where we honor the life of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., um, the movement that him and many others um, produced uh, in, in this nation and the ways that we're thankful for that and that we acknowledge that there's still more work to be done. Um, so... You may or may not know Thurman and King were familiar with each other, maybe not best friends, um, but Howard Thurman was someone who really formed and upheld uh, and drove the activism of King. And it kind of, I don't know, it's this question for me of like, what are the things that form and inform our action in the world? And so it felt right this morning um, to lean on Thurman's words. Uh, this is entitled, Surrounded by the Love of God. Um, so I would invite you to receive these words this morning as we enter into worship. I am surrounded by the love of God. The earth beneath my feet is the great womb out of which the life upon which my body depends comes in utter abundance. There is at work in the soil a mystery by which the death of one seed is reborn a thousandfold in newness of life. The magic of wind, sun, and rain creates a climate that nourishes every living thing. It is law, and more than law, it is order. And more than order, there is a brooding tenderness out of which it all comes. In the contemplation of the earth, I know that I am surrounded by the love of God. The events of my days strike a full balance of what seems both good and bad. Whatever may be the tensions and the stresses of a particular day, there is always, lurking close at hand, the trailing beauty of forgotten joy or unremembered peace. I'm going to read that one again. Whatever may be the tensions and the stresses of a particular day, there is always lurking close at hand the trailing beauty of forgotten joy or unremembered peace. The weakness that engulfs me in its writhing toils reveals hidden strengths that could not show their face until my own desperation called them forth. 
In the contemplation of the events of my days, I know that I am surrounded by the love of God. The edge of hope that constantly invades the seasoned grounds of despair. The faith that keeps watch at the doors through which pass all the labors of my life and heart for what is right and good. The impulse to forgive and to seek forgiveness even when the injury is sharp and clear. These and countless other things make me know that by day and by night, my life is surrounded by the love of God. I am surrounded by the love of God. Amen. Hey, everybody. Um, I was muted. So, uh, take two. Uh... (laughs) You know, at, at other churches, there's a good chance that people would get fired for that kind of thing, or, you know, there'd be meetings about this or whatever, but um, not here. We'll just, uh, we'll just try this again. I'm Micah. I'm glad you're here, wherever you are. And uh, before we get to the teaching, I want to introduce some friends of mine. Some of you know uh, Donna Albinson serves on our board, her husband Tom. They are uh, members here at the church and um, a part of an organization, um, Tom runs an organization that Awaken Support. So there's a group of us uh, called our missional team, and we meet monthly. And part of our job is to listen to the community. Um, a while back, we, we asked you a number of questions about really what, is, what does Awaken care about? What's in the hearts of the people here? And from that, what we heard back, uh, we sort of went out into the uh, community and into the neighborhoods and tried to find partners and, and people and ministries that are doing work that um, is important to the hearts of the people of Awaken. And so one of those is International Association for Refugees. And so I'm going to invite Tom and Donna to come and share a little bit about the work that they're doing in a recent trip they took. So would you please welcome Tom and Donna Albertson. Thanks, Micah. Yeah. Good morning, Awaken. It's good to be with you. Um, not long ago, Donna and I went to a place called Kakuma. Uh, it's a town up in um, remote northwestern Kenya. Um, it's in a very inhospitable semi-desert environment where I like to tell people who go with me everything there wants to kill you. And um, in 1992, Kakuma was selected by the Kenyan government and the United Nations to host a refugee camp, so about 30 years ago. Today, that camp has 200,000 people in it, 80% of which are women and children. Um, They've been displaced by war and violence in neighboring countries. The primary people groups are coming from South Sudan, Sudan, and Somalia. The people live without running water, without electricity, unless they're fortunate enough to be able to afford an electric generator. And they live in houses built out of the dirt from the ground in the camp. Um, Some actually live in just tents or in tarped uh, dwellings. Uh, those that can afford it by metal sheets to put over their roofs or add, to use as roofs to stop the rains from being able to get in. The people are, are far from home and they can't return. They're dependent on humanitarian agencies and uh, there's a couple of crises there. One of them is just survival and the other one is a crisis of hope. And so IAFR, we partner with an association of 164 churches that are embedded in the camp and in the surrounding host community that work together. Um, I visit usually, uh, before COVID, uh, one, to two, one to three times a year. Um, we were finally able to get there during COVID in October, and Donna went with me, and it was Donna's first chance 
to join me on a visit there. I'd like her to tell us a bit about it. Thanks. Well, I've known about Kakuma through Tom's work, and I've worked with refugees for many years, but currently I work full-time with senior adults. So going there, I felt like it was very important to go with a posture of listening, to learn and to understand um, what their life is like, and then to be able to share that um, with others. And so I had the opportunity to sit down with um, about 25 women from um, the churches that we work with, and they speak uh, six or seven different languages. They're from different countries and from the host community. And I started by asking them to just share with me what daily life was like. And they all, most all of them, shared mostly about the food insecurities and how the UN gives them rations every two months but the rations are only enough to really last about two weeks. And so they wake up days and weeks trying to figure out how they're going to provide food for their families. And so they go out and they um, try to find jobs, and they're very scarce in a refugee camp, as you can imagine. And so they might um, wash someone's clothes for them, or they might uh, take jerry cans down to the river and get water and carry that for someone. Um, but mostly they don't find anything. And so then they have to go home and face their children and say, I have nothing to give you to eat. And you could just tell the stress and the despair and the shame they felt in not being able to care for their families. And so that was really hard. And I asked them, well, how do you, what is the role of your faith in God in your daily life? And they shared with me, um, yeah, just how many times they have trouble um, really believing um, when, with this struggle and, and wondering if God is there. And yet they know that without God, they wouldn't even survive. And so uh, they talked about how they, um, yeah, they just hang on to God. One lady just said, I just hang on and I will never let him go. And um, yeah, it, it was... Um, just a beautiful time of listening to them talk about their faith. But then I also asked, how do you, how do you keep going? Who, how do you find support in that? And they talked about um, their neighbors and about their church. And one woman shared that if I have no food, but my neighbor has food, I won't go hungry that day. And the same for them. If I have food, I will share it with them. And then the church and how important it is as a place to help support their faith and help keep them going and how the church really reaches out and helps their community, their church community, but also the greater community and tries to offer the hope of Jesus to those who don't know about him. So it was a beautiful um, but devastating conversation because I just, I just felt helpless knowing I couldn't change their circumstances and yet I was amazed and challenged by their faith that they keep going and even the joy in their worship, um, even as they face this struggle every day of their lives. One of the things I remember you saying was how the uh, women didn't ask you for food or for money or anything, but they expressed their desire um, for uh, help learning how to start a small business, to start feeding their kids. And, so that's informing our organization, IFR, as far as how we will partner them with the churches 
Um, there are entrepreneurs within refugee populations that have figured out how to make money in a refugee camp, and we'd love to help our refugee church partners learn from those guys so they can instruct their own people to be able to at least generate enough income to feed their kids a meal every day. Um, so we do partner with these churches. Um, everybody in the camp is traumatized. Everyone there has suffered enormous loss, including the loss of place in the world. And um, that makes it very difficult to keep hope alive when you can't go home and there's nowhere else that wants to take you up. And so those churches are faced with an almost impossible task. And I've, as I've gotten to know them over the years, I've learned a lot from them including what I think are some key threads of hope, what, create, what the ingredients of hope are out there. And the refugee churches have shown me that one of the core pieces of hope is to be embedded in a safe and supportive community that has a life-giving worldview and a place that helps people overcome trauma and other issues so that they can be emotionally whole. And the churches are involved in that stuff, and so we as an organization get behind their ideas that strengthen those things so that those churches can indeed continue to help people, many of whom have been there for already three decades, many who were born there and have never been from the country that their papers say they're from. We serve in other places too as IAFR. We serve in Malawi in another refugee camp. We serve in Greece. We serve in France. We serve in Atlanta. We serve in Colorado. We serve right here in the Twin Cities with the Jonathan House Ministry. We're working on a couple of new locations. One's in Bosnia-Herzegovina in Europe, and another one is along the southern border with the U.S. and Texas, and we hope to start those ministries up soon um, this year. Because there is a crisis of hope, and we believe the church uh, works in the currency of hope, as my friends at the United Nations like to say. Um, if you're interested in this kind of thing, if you're interested in participating in some way, I'd love to talk with you. Um, you can learn more about IAFR by going to our website, iafr.org. Better yet, I'd love to buy you a cup of coffee. And we can talk about things like how we can work together to create space in the hearts and minds of others for refugees and asylum seekers. Or we could talk about some of the volunteer opportunities that we have. Uh, within IAFR, both here in the U.S., here locally, and uh, even internationally. Um, we can also even talk about long-term opportunities if you're interested. If you want to learn more, please go to our website. And I do thank you for your partnership, Awaken. Thanks, Tom and Donna. Um, you know, it's, uh, <clears throat> I'm always blown away on Sunday mornings when we gather uh, I've often said that like everybody's in the room. Um, think of a, an industry or a profession or a group of people, and there's a good chance. But as the church gathers, like everyone's in the room, and so um, one of our jobs, I think, as leaders and pastors, is just to, just to remind you all of the work that's that's happening, that the church is involved in, and that you get to participate in um, through Tom and, and Donna's faithfulness and the work that they're doing. So hope that's encouraging to you. Um, well, welcome back. If you are uh, joining us, we're in week two of Epiphany, uh, and we are in this series called The Life and Teachings of Jesus. Uh, at Awaken, we say we want to gather around this well, which is the life and teachings and the death and resurrection of Jesus. So we're taking the season between Advent and Lent to really sort of dive into uh, the greatest hits of Jesus' teachings and look at the kinds of habits and the kinds of rhythms that he had in place and in his life which he then calls those who follow him to emulate. Um, so last week we looked at 
this, uh, what Jesus says, the whole law and the prophets all hang on, which is love God and love people. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, and I offered this idea of thinking about the headwaters or the source, the place from which our love of God and our love of neighbor might flow, and uh, posited this idea or this belief that unless our love of God are, uh, is a response from what is true and real, which is that you are a beloved creation of God, that you are made from love and for love, that if our love, if our love of God and love of neighbor doesn't start there, that it... it um, that, that the headwaters, if, if, if it starts from anything other than that, for example, of, uh, from fear or anxiety, uh, guilt, tradition, duty, that that just can't bring life. It, it, it won't bring life. And so uh, if we rather begin with this belief and receive from and live from this what's true and real, that uh, we're made from love and for love, that we are the, the beloved creatures of God, that our, our love of God can then be a response uh, and our love of neighbor as such. Um, so this week I want to turn to Matthew chapter 5. This is the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus' like, most famous teaching. Uh, <clears throat> and in it we find some of the most profound things that Jesus says. Uh, I want to try to connect it to this weekend that we are in, which is where we celebrate and think about the life of Dr. Martin Luther King. So let's read from Matthew chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, turn there. Uh, and actually, if you're able, I'll invite you to stand wherever you are, unless you're uh, driving or something. Don't do that then. But this is Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 38. Jesus says this. <clears throat> you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn, them, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go a mile, go with them two miles. Give to anyone who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray with me. God, this morning as we turn our attention to the scriptures and these words that you spoke so long ago, uh, it's my hope and prayer that uh, your spirit would do a fresh work in us and for us this morning as the church. So bind our hearts together, um, invite us, move us, challenge us uh, to be more like you, Jesus, I pray. In the strong name of Christ and uh, the church said together, amen, amen. <clears throat> so uh, in the midst of a, a civil rights struggle where uh, there was a fight for, a struggle for equality and equity, uh, Martin Luther King, uh, I want to read a quote that, that, we, that, that is attributed to him where he's talking about the reality of violence against uh, black people and the response of uh, the civil rights leaders. He writes this. He says, It is no longer a choice, my friends, between violence and nonviolence. It is either nonviolence or non existence. I believe today that there is a need for all people of goodwill to come with a massive act of conscience and to say, in the words of the old Negro spiritual, We ain't going to study war no more. We ain't going to study war no more. Uh, what what is Dr. King saying? Like, we're not going to ready ourselves for violence. We're not going to prepare ourselves for war because a life of violence or participation in violence is, not, is no life at all. Uh, rather, the opposite, actually. It's death, even for, even for the supposed winners, that if it, if it takes violence to do it, that it's really not a life at all. Uh, which sounds a little bit like the prophet Isaiah's vision, Right? Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4 says, He will judge between the nations and settle disputes for many people. 
They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Or the psalmist who says he makes war cease to the ends of the earth, breaks the bow, shatters the spear. Dr. King is saying we're not going to study for war anymore because a life of violence is not a life at all. Um, it's either non-violence or non-existence. So I want to begin today with an assertion, with a, a declaration, a belief that I have, which is connected to the teachings of Jesus, the life of Jesus, um, what he calls us to. And then I want to look at these verses, verses 38 to 41 specifically, and then offer a few observations about this declaration or assertion I'm going to make. So an assertion, an interpretation, and then an observation. So here's my, here's my assertion. Here's what I believe is true. I believe that the way of Jesus is a way of nonviolent resistance and active peacemaking. So when we come in contact with evil or violence uh, in the world, that our response as people who follow Jesus is one of nonviolence, resistance, yes, but nonviolent resistance, and of peacemaking, active peacemaking. That this is uh, uh, connected to, uh, like deeply embedded in what Jesus was about and what he calls us to be about. It's a path that invites us to love our enemies, uh, to forgive those who have wronged us, to neither participate in vengeance nor to hold a grudge, as we talked about last week, even when we've been wronged. It invites us to join the song Dr. King quotes and say, we're not going to study war anymore because that path doesn't and cannot lead to life. So we live in a world that is filled with violence and death and chaos. And Jesus' life and world was filled with death and violence and chaos. And consistent to his call and his life was to rise above the sort of game of thrones that was being played. To not participate in it, but to walk a different path. One that was not violent. That didn't use or participate in violence against your brother or sister. Uh, a resistance and forgiveness, right? He says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. When Jesus was asked in Peter, uh, uh, by Peter in Matthew 18, like, how, how, how long should my uh, forgiveness go? Like, how, how many times do I have to forgive? Jesus said, or he, Peter said, seven? And then Jesus' response is, no, 70 times seven. Like, there's no end to your forgiveness. You release those who wrong you into the hands of God. You don't take vengeance into your own hands. You don't hold a grudge. And when you resist, you do so nonviolently. Your life is to be marked by an active peacemaking. Now, I don't, I don't think this case is really hard to make. If you're going to read the Bible and you're going to do it through the lens of Jesus or a cruciform hermeneutic, one, uh, well, Greg Boyd, many of you know, talks about, then I think that it's a, it's a, it's a, a way, a life of pacifism, of peacemaking, of nonviolent resistance, that this is Jesus' life and the one he calls us to. So, this is my belief. This is my assertion. That's where I begin today, that the life and teachings of Jesus leads us down this path. Now, let's look at verses 38 to 41 specifically and see if we can unpack this a little bit. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm uh, calling on and referencing uh, the work of a theologian named Walter Wink. Uh, what a great name, by the way, Walter Wink. He was uh, since uh, passed on, but was the, uh, one of the professors of the Bible at Auburn Theological Seminary in New York. And before I go any further, I want to just sort of say uh, at, the, at the onset that there is a difference between historical critical work and then theological and interpretive work. So here's what I mean by that. 
Um, historical criticism is a discipline within Bible study that really seeks to discover the text's original meaning. It's looking to like recreate the context uh, where it was originally written and try to understand what did the person who said it first mean, right? Um, secondly, it sort of attempts to recreate the historical situation around the author and what they might have said. On the other hand, interpretive work or theological work is, con is concerned with the question of like, what did it mean? But it's also asking, what does it mean? And what can it mean? So historical criticism is like, what did it mean to the person who said it first? What was their intent? And then another discipline within Bible study, theological or interpretive work, is like, what can it mean? Or what does it mean for us now today? So Walter Wink offers a way of reading this passage that we're about to get into that has brought sharp dispute among historical criticism. Uh, and I don't disagree with a lot of the criticism if, that, if that's his in, intent or his aim. But in terms of like theology and interpretive work, his, his offering is like right down the middle of the lane of Jesus' life. And I think his ethics and who he is as a person based in scripture. So I'll offer it to you this morning to consider, but just know that there's there is some dispute about like that work and is this actually what Jesus meant when he said it first? We'll see. But either way, I think it's still worth it. So here's the interpretation. Jesus is speaking to uh, an ancient Palestinian Israeli uh, Jewish group of people who lived in modern day Israel under Roman occupation. Uh, what that means is a lot of different things, but one of, it, one of the things it does mean for sure is that Jews were taxed exorbitant amounts of money by the Romans, by uh, the Herodians, who were sort of the, uh, the, the you know, appointed rulers uh, over that area, and then even by their own people, right? Publicans, tax collectors, who would take the temple tax, which was normal uh, for an everyday Jew, but then often they would take a cut on top of that. So they're being taxed at multiple different levels. And what that means is that for a lot of people in Jesus' day, there was a very oppressive economic situation where many of them, there were also predatory lenders and land grabbers. And so land is everything in an ancient world. And so if you're being taxed absorbing amounts of money and there were people who were like uh, in predatory ways attempting to steal and take land from people, it was a struggle on a lot of different accounts. Uh, often families who had had land all the way back to the allotment of land from uh, uh, when the, then the people of God came into the, the promised land, like way back in the book of Joshua, had lost those plots of land and really uh, were left with nothing but the shirts, the clothes on their backs. Um, and so Jesus is speaking into this uh, atmosphere where a lot of folks were under duress economically and politically. And it's into this context that Jesus says, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek. If someone uh, takes your cloak or your outer garment, give them your tunic, your inner garment as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go two miles. So what is Jesus doing here? Uh, is this like a recipe or instructions to, like, uh, to be a doormat for those who oppress you? Is this like take it on the chin for Jesus? Uh, or is something else going on? And I would suggest that something else is going on. So first, turn the other cheek. In the Jewish culture... Uh, to do anything with your left hand was uh, not considered something that was um, 
it, it was unclean. Uh, a lot of the tasks that you would, you would uh, undertake in a day that you would do with your left hand were not things you would want to do with your right hand or that you would want to touch another person with. You would never shake hands with someone with your left hand. That's what you do other things with. Everybody tracking here? Um, there was actually a, a group of people called Qumran where uh, outside of, uh, in the desert, this sort of Jewish group of folks who lived out there, they, in their text that we find in the Dead Sea Scrolls, gesturing with the left hand was like exclusion from the community for a hundred days. So it was a big deal. You wouldn't do anything with your left hand, not even strike another person. So what is, so Jesus said, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, right, is what the text says, Matthew chapter 5, 538. If you, you've heard it said, for an eye, for an eye, tooth, tooth, anyone slaps you on the right cheek. So if someone slaps me on the right cheek, if they're standing over here, the only way they could do that would be by backhanding me, right? Slapping me with the back of their hand. And you would do that to a person if they were lower class or lower status than you. If they were a slave or a subordinate, you would backhand them. You would slap them. And it was sort of this derogatory, demeaning, dehumanizing act. But Jesus says if someone slaps you, dehumanizes you, uh, speaks to you, treats you in a way that's derogatory, turn the other cheek to them. Because the only way they could strike you on the left cheek was with a closed fist in their right hand. Which you would only do to an equal. You would only do that to somebody that you honored the dignity of or the humanity of and equal to you. So what has Jesus just done? He's sort of flipped the tables, right? The person who has oppressed you, uh, or, or the person who was oppressed, receiving the end of evil, the person who was powerless, has now become the person with power and agency. And in that moment, if you turn the other cheek, the oppressor, the one who's, who's exuding or, or giving the violence, has a choice to make. Do they honor your humanity and strike you as a fellow human uh, or, or an equal, or not? Do they cha- so, so it opens the door for a different course of action. So Jesus says, if someone slaps you on the, the right cheek, turn your other cheek. It's a moment of choice for the person who is oppressing or who is acting in violent ways. Second, he says, give them your tunic also. Again, in Jesus' time and day, you would likely have two garments. You'd have an outer garment, a cloak, and then you'd have an inner garment, like a tunic, an, an, an undergarment. Uh, and because of these predatory practices and uh, lending practices and these taxations, lots of people um, were found in court being sued literally for the clothes on their backs. And if someone like uh, had the gall, was low enough to take you to court after having lost your land and, and your property to sue you for literally the shirt on your back, Jesus says, if they, if they sue you for the shirt on your back, then give them your undergarment as well, which would leave you in the court of law naked. Now, for us in 2021, like, no one's signing up for that one, right? When, when we, uh, if someone's naked, the person who is ashamed is the person who does, who's in their birthday suit. But in this time, actually, shame would have been brought on the people who viewed the nakedness, not the person who was naked. Remember Noah. He goes into, uh, he gets a little drunk, he's, he's naked in his tent, and his sons walk in on him. And it's not Noah that is shamed, but his sons who were shamed, because they viewed the nakedness. So what has Jesus done? Someone sues you for your, your outer garment, give them your undergarment as well. Again, he's flipped the tables. 
Because the person who is, ex- who is naked is not the one who is shamed, but the one who views it. The person who had all the power for suing for the cloak now is the person who is responding to or not holding all the cards. The oppressor has a choice. Do they move forward or do they say, no, 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 keep, keep your clothes on. It opens a door to a new and different course of action. So, Jesus says, someone slaps you on the right side, turn, your, turn the other cheek. If someone takes your cloak, give them your tunic also. If someone says, walk a mile, go a second mile for them. Again, Jews were under Roman occupation. It would have been totally common if you're walking down the road for you to cross the paths with a Roman soldier. And according to Roman law, they could require any person that they asked to carry their pack for one, up to one mile. This is in Roman law. But they could not ask a Jew, an occupy, an, uh, a person of, of their occupation, to, to do more than one mile. So what was previously reserved for donkeys, mules, you know, uh, animals, a Roman soldier could make a Jewish person do on request. But like, what happens if that person, after the one mile marker, and actually the, the Romans were famous for marking their roads uh, and distances, if they just kept going? Jesus says, if someone asks you to go one mile, actually do the one mile and then keep going. It's not an invitation to be a doormat. It's actually an invitation into a position of power where the tables get flipped again. Where the person who was making the request, dehumanizing the other, is actually the one who's at in a, in a tricky spot. So in each of these cases, Jesus invites a path that is nonviolent, but a resistance movement. It's rooted in the love of other, and it's resisting dehumanizing tendencies of the oppressor or the person in power. And I would argue that this way of reading this passage is consistent with the life and teachings of Jesus. In fact, this is ultimately the way by which Jesus defeats death and evil on the cross, right? By taking the tool of death, putting it in its grave, and rising three days later. So let me close with a few observations. If, this is, if we're on the right track here at all, and Jesus' life and teachings and therefore his call to us is about nonviolence and, and sometimes resistance, but a, 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 a way of peacemaking, what, is this, what's, what are some observations we can make? The first is this. The invitation of Jesus is to take the violence and the evil out of circulation. Now, you guys have heard me talk about this. I've shared this with my illustration with my kids. Um, one of my kids came home the other day and they were telling me about a situation where they chose to, to they chose this particular path and I just couldn't celebrate with them because I said, I was like, it seems like you just, you just volleyed back what you received. Like, you were treated poorly, you were treated in an undignified way and instead of choosing to take that out of the system, instead of choosing to take it out of circulation, you just like lobbed it back and hit it across the net. When someone does evil to you, when someone treats you less than dignified, when someone exerts power over you, you have a choice. You can respond in kind. You can volley it back. Or, like Jesus, you can absorb the blow, the evil, the violence, and you can take it out of circulation, right? Do you guys remember the library? You ever go to the library anymore? You go there and you, you check out books, and those books are in circulation, right? They're just on the shelves, and anytime a book is there in circulation, you can go and you can rent it. You can check it out. But if a book is causing harm and it's, and it's doing damage in people's lives, it's bringing about death, the librarian can take that book off the shelf. They can take it out of circulation, and nobody can rent it anymore because it's not available, 
Questions, you've heard me say, questions beget answers of their kind. To that I would add, actions produce fruit of their kind. You cannot sow anger, violence, evil, and death and expect to grow peace, harmony, and love. Like You have to sow seeds of peace in order to grow the fruit of peace. So first, I would observe that Jesus' invitation is to take violence and evil and actions of that kind out of circulation. To absorb and not return with violent action. It also means that someone has to go first. Somebody has to go first. And if you choose to take the, the evil, the violence, out of circulation to absorb the blow, it may in fact look like you're losing. It may in fact look like you've lost. Yeah. This is how it works. Like when Jesus dies on the cross, his disciples don't think to themselves, now we've got them. Right? It wasn't like, you know, I just finished Money Heist. You know, the professor did not have another trick up his sleeve here. They thought that it was over, that like the game, game set match, checkmate. But in fact, when Jesus dies on the cross, it looks like he loses until three days later, right? And this path that we choose, this path of Jesus that we've been invited onto, uh, as someone who follows Jesus, it might look like you've lost. It might look like you lose. If you're going to go first, it may look weak to the world. It may look powerless to the world. It may look foolish to the world. You may even get taken advantage of by the world. You may suffer in the world. Yeah, this is how it works. This is why Jesus and Paul and the, the writers of the New Testament say, like, don't be surprised if you suffer for this way. Because this way is to go first. It's to absorb the violence and not return it. Because we believe that death is not the way forward. And violence cannot ever produce life. The resurrection ensures that this path is actually the one to life. Which leads me to one final observation. And that is that Jesus' invitation, it leaves the door open, it preserves agency, and it exposes the lie of redemptive violence. Friends, the nonviolent resistance of Jesus, it actually leaves the door open for even the oppressor. You catch that? There's a moment here with Jesus' invitation to respond in this way. There's a moment here for even the one doing the violence to change, to repent, to turn around. Walter Wink writes this. He says, love of enemies is the recognition that the enemy, too, is a child of God. The enemy, too, believes they are in the right and fears us because we represent a threat against their values, lifestyle, or affluence. When we demonize our enemies, calling them names and identifying them with absolute evil, we deny that they have that of God within them that makes transformation possible. Instead, we play God. We write them out of the book of life. That's a really profound statement. I write them out of the book of life. I conclude that my enemy has drifted beyond the redemptive hand of God. May that never be true of those who follow Jesus. Jesus' way always preserves and leaves the door open for repentance. 
even those doing the oppressing, even those doing the violence. I would also say that it preserves agency. Like when we experience violence, when someone oppresses, when someone treats you in an undignified manner, it often feels powerless. But there's a moment here, a way to see this, that by choosing nonviolent resistance, it preserves agency. Jesus' invitation actually like, gives you a place to stand as a human with dignity in the face of resisting a particular way of being human. And it exposes this myth, which is, and I'll close with this, the myth of redemptive violence, which is a lie that life can flourish from violent acts against another. That somehow life can come from a violent act against another person or thing. We live in a world that posits like this zero-sum game. That the only way for me to win is for you to lose. The only way for me to thrive and to live is for you or something else to die. That's a lie. A lie of violence redeeming something. That anything can be redeemed by perpetuating violence. And it's a lie that's everywhere. It's the engine that drives our world. It's in our economics. It's in our politics. It's even in our religion. If you've ever had uh, like a hesitation or a question about this idea that an angry God needs bloodshed in order to redeem something, you should. That's a good question to ask. Because it's actually playing into the lie, the myth of redemptive violence. God does not need blood to be shed in order to forgive. God does not need Jesus to die on a cross in order to appease God's anger. No, in fact, the exact opposite is happening in that moment. Jesus is putting the lie of redemptive violence on display as a mockery once and for all that this will never need to happen again. Jesus absorbs the blow of violence, takes on death itself, and puts it in its grave and resurrects three days later, declaring once and for all that violence cannot and will not ever redeem anything. Only love can redeem. So, my friends, as we close this morning, as we tune our hearts into the teachings of Jesus, this well that we want to gather around, I would submit to you that Jesus' life and way is a way of nonviolence. Resistance, yes, but nonviolent resistance to evil and oppression in the world, misuse of power, and it is an invitation to active peacemaking. That when people find Jesus followers, this is what we'll be up to one where we love our enemies and forgive those who wrong us. Even as we resist the violence and evil and forces and powers and principalities in this world, but there is an alternative path. A path that refuses the binary options of, like, uh, flight, freeze, you know, be a doormat, or fight, return violence with violence. No, there's actually a different, there's a third way. One that rises above that. That takes violence out of the system. That opens the door for even the oppressor to repent. That exposes the lie that anything can be redeemed by violence. And it's a way of love. Even for our enemies. This is the well we gather around. Why? Because I think that the resurrection of Jesus proves, it, 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 it vindicates the fact that this path actually does lead to life. And so it's the path that I invite you to as the church. Either it's true or it's not. And I believe that it is. And it's a better way to live. So let's do it. Pray with me. Uh, I'll, 
offer a word of prayer here and then just a moment of silence and we'll make our way to the table and to closing our time together. God, as we take a few moments this morning to be still, um, to quiet our hearts, to consider the things that we've heard, I pray that your Holy Spirit would lead and guide right now, that you would be opening our eyes and our ears to the voice of your Spirit, to the movement of your Spirit, to what is true and accurate, what represents you. And so, God, if there's anything I've said that's not congruent with who you are and what you've called us to be, that that would just fall away. But if there is anything that's true, if there's anything that's accurate and and represents and is uh, in tune with your spirit, God, would you just highlight it this morning for us? So Holy Spirit, do your work, I pray. Well, my friends, I hope today has been uh, an encouragement to you, a reminder of uh, what really is in this well that we gather around uh, this person of Jesus and the life he lived. Um, I think it's pretty clear, to be perfectly honest. Um, sometimes it gets lost in, in the mix, but um, when you really tune in, that, that note rings pretty true, pretty long in Jesus' life. So um, receive this blessing as you go. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Grace and peace, friends. See you next week. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash community or on Twitter at Awakening Community. See you next time.